Well, welcome, everybody. Can y'all hear me okay? Awesome. Uh, welcome to Awaken. Welcome to First Baptist Ruston. Uh, if this is your first time, uh, our college pastor, Justin, he's the guy who talks funny, that talked right before worship. Uh, that's Justin. If you're wondering how to get plugged in here, wondering how to get involved in our ministry, that's a great guy to talk to. Uh, and then as he mentioned, my name is Jesse. Uh, I'm on leadership here at First, uh, and I would love to talk to you about how to get involved with our ministry as well. Um, with that being said, uh, Justin approached me with the opportunity to preach tonight. I've gotten to speak a few times at Awaken now, uh, and it's a great privilege and an honor. Uh, and so I'm, I'm very glad to be here before you tonight. Uh, uh, as Justin kind of came to me uh, with the proposition to preach tonight, um, we were finishing up our, our, uh, our ser- sermon series in Philippians over the book of Philippians, and Justin did a great job finishing that last night, or not last night, last Wednesday. And when we met, Justin wasn't really sure what we were going to do next, where we were going to go. And so I kind of got to pick uh, whatever I wanted to preach on, which is a cool opportunity, uh, because the first couple times I've done this, uh, it's been in the middle of a series, and so I kind of already knew what I was going to speak on. And so this time, I actually found it a little more challenging to decide what to preach on, uh, because it was a little easier to kind of already know uh, what I was going to speak on, and then uh, kind of break down that passage. Uh, but this time, I really had to think about uh, wanted, what I wanted to bring before you tonight, and obviously that was a process uh, of a lot of prayer and a lot of thinking, and I was, as I was thinking through it, I kept coming back uh, to one passage, uh, and that's First Peter chapter 2, if you want to go, go ahead and turn there tonight. Uh, there's a lot of reasons that passage was weighing heavy on my heart. Uh, probably the main reason is it's probably the passage that I hold most dear in the, in the Bible. I wouldn't hesitate to say that it's my favorite passage in the Bible, if there can be such a thing. Uh, and there's a lot of reasons I really enjoy this passage. Uh, and if you've ever heard me talk about something I care about or that I'm passionate about, I have a tendency to be a bit technical about it. I can get a little lost in the details, uh, and it beca- becomes like very muddled and confusing very quickly. And so I knew that because I'm presenting the Word of God, you know, it's fine when I'm talking about Star Wars or something if I'm confusing, but when I'm talking about the Word of God, I want to be clear and I want to be to the point. Uh, And so I knew that was going to be a struggle for me coming into this. And so I really wanted to kind of pull back and really look at what Peter is trying to say uh, to the Christians he's writing to at, at the core. What is he really trying to get at? And when I really looked at it, and really broke it down, what it kind of boiled down to was really two words, and that's grace and identity, and really identity through grace. And uh, what I mean by that is that through God's grace, He gives us an identity, uh, and He defines us. And that's an aspect of grace that that I think we tend to overlook. We kind of think of grace as one-dimensional, right? Like God saved us, and that's grace. And that is a huge aspect of grace, but God shows His grace to us in a multitude of ways, right? The fact that we exist, the fact that we get to live, that's all God's grace. Uh, and then through God's grace, he, he gives us an identity, which again is an aspect of grace I think we tend to overlook. And so that's what I wanted to bring to you tonight. Uh, so to give you some context on what Peter is talking about and who he's writing to, Peter is writing this letter to Jewish Christians uh, who are a part of what's called the dispersion. And basically what that is, is uh, the Jews at this time, Rome had invaded Israel and had taken over. And so the Jewish people were kind of scattered about all throughout the the Roman Empire. That's where we get this term, the dispersion. They were dispersed. Um, And so they had no real sense of um, national identity. They, They had no real sense of who they were. Uh, and that also at this time, they were facing a lot of fierce persecution. So Nero was emperor of Rome at this time. Uh, if you don't know who that is, he, he's pretty infamous. Uh, he's the guy who burned Rome to the ground. Um, and he actually ended up blaming the Christians for that. 
And so they, the Christians began to take a lot of flack for that incident. Um, he's also known for lighting the streets of Rome with Christians at night. So what I mean by that is they would light Christians on fire and use them as lampposts, essentially. And so they were under pretty heavy persecution, I think it's fair to say. Um, and so in light of that, it would have been easy for them uh, to have become defined by their immediate circumstances uh, and what was going on around them and not defined by their creator. And so Peter is reminding them in 1 Peter chapter 2 who they are in Christ. And so in this passage, I really think there's three ways that Peter shows that we receive an identity through grace. And those three ways are redemption, responsibility, and response. Redemption, responsibility, and response. And we'll get to each of those points tonight. Uh, But first, to start off, I just want to read through the passage with you, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get into it. So 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, it says this, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I just thank you so much for tonight and for this opportunity, God, uh, to present your word is no easy feat, God, Uh, but the good news is that ultimately you will speak tonight, God, and you will be the one who teaches God, not me. So I pray that I would not get in the way tonight, that uh, my zeal for this passage wouldn't overcome the truth that's in it, that uh, what you intend uh, to say tonight is what is said, God, that truth would ultimately reign over all things, God, that you would speak. Again, I thank you for this opportunity, and I pray that you would use me. It's your name I pray. Amen. So our first point tonight, we receive an identity and grace through redemption. We receive an identity and grace through redemption. So verse 1, Peter says this. He says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. So remember, Peter's writing to Christians. He's writing to Christian Jews. And he makes it clear that as Christians, they are to live differently than they did before they were saved. Their life before they knew Christ and their life after they knew Christ are meant to be distinct. They're not to be muddled together. Your identities before and after salvation should be distinct. Are they? This behavior that Peter's describing, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, those are all indicative of a life before Christ. The sin that defined these these Christians before they were saved is no longer how they are to be identified, right? They're supposed to put it away, is what Peter says. Then he moves on into verse 2. He says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. So they're supposed to put away 
as Christians, all these things that defined them before they knew Christ. And now that they're in Christ, they're meant to live like newborn infants, which is the analogy Peter uses here. He says they need to long for spiritual milk. You know, when you have a baby, you can't give it water, you can't give it solid food. Milk alone will sustain a newborn child. It's the only thing that has the right nutrients to keep a child alive, to keep them active. And if you've ever seen a baby that was hungry, they will do whatever they can, which isn't much because they're children, but still, they will do whatever they can to get that milk. And so in the same way, we as Christians are to long for a relationship with God and His Word. We are supposed to be contrasted with our life before Christ. And now that we're in Christ, we should be longing for His Word. This is how we are to be identified, is a longing for God, a longing for His Word. So in the same way, followers of Christ are to be fed by our relationship with God. That is what's meant to sustain us. That's what's meant to keep us alive. That's what's meant to drive us forward, to give us energy, is God. And so our deepest desire should be to know God more and to make Him known. But why? Why is this the case? Why, why do we turn from sin? Why do we put away all those things? Why, why is God meant to be the only thing we rely on? And really, what, what do those two things have to do with our identity? Well, the answer that Peter gives is in verse 3. He says this. He says, If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So the reason that we turn from sin and live with Christ at the center of our lives is because we've tasted that the Lord is good. Well, what does that mean? This is what I, I, I think it really means, is that we understand what Christ has done for us. That's what it means to taste that the Lord is good. And so if you understand what Christ has done for you, then you'll put away how you lived before you knew Christ, and now you'll live as if He's the only thing that matters because He is the only thing that matters. And so, the question, a question I would ask tonight is, have you ever received mercy? Have you ever tasted that the Lord is good? And how did you respond to that mercy? I remember a time my dad showed me mercy. Um, I was probably nine or ten years old, and... Um, my parents had just hired some guys to line the sidewalk of our house leading up to the front door and some of the flower beds. They lined it with brick, I guess you would call it. It's not really brick. It's concrete or something like that, and it's meant to look like brick. Uh, and so they, they just hired some guys to do this, and when the guys had finished, they had left. Uh, you know, it's concrete, right? So it has to dry for a couple of days. And my dad, you know, sat me down. He looked me in the eyes. He said, son, it's concrete. It's got to dry for a couple days. Don't touch it. Don't go anywhere near it. Don't look at it. Don't sniff it. Don't do anything. Don't, don't even think about the concrete. And if you were anything like me when you were a kid, that basically ensured that I was going to get as close to the concrete as possible and stretch the boundaries my dad had given me as far as I possibly could, right? And so it wasn't long after that, probably the next day, uh, I think I was shooting basketball in the driveway, and I wasn't very good, so I hit the rim, and the ball bounced off and kind of rolled over by the concrete, and you know, that gave me the perfect excuse to walk over exactly where my dad had told me not to go, because you know, I have to go get the ball, I have to keep working on my game. And, uh, and so I walked over and picked up the ball, and you know, I was already by the concrete. I was right there, and I was like, well, it's, it's been about a day, you know. It's probably dry by now. And so I kind of touched it with my hand, and, you know, me being 9 and 10 and having all the construction expertise that I had, I, I decided that from the way it felt that it was dry. And so then I kind of stuck my toe out and kind of touched it with my shoe a little bit, and nothing happened. And so I thought, well, it definitely is dry now. And so I pressed my foot on it a little harder, and I left a giant footprint in the concrete. And uh, 
I had a moment that you've all probably experienced where your parents specifically told you not to do something and you done messed up, right? And I, I, I knew a whooping was probably in the future. And so I don't know if I felt bad, if I felt guilty for what I had done, or if I kind of realized, you know, there's a giant footprint. You know, the, the evidence is pretty obvious. Like, there's probably not, not any way to hide this. Uh, so I don't know what exactly my motivation was in fessing up, uh, but that's what I decided to do. I decided to fess up. And so uh, I guess my dad got home later that day, and, you know, I kind of sheepishly went up to him, and I told him. I told him what had happened. And I said, you know, Dad, I left a giant footprint in the concrete that you specifically told me not to go anywhere near or think about or do anything with. Um, and, you know, I fully expected him to say, you know, go to your room. I'll be there in five minutes. You know what that means. Uh, it's not good. Uh, but he had a different reaction. He looked at me in that moment with love. Uh, not that he wasn't loving and disciplined, but he looked at me in that moment with love. And he forgave me. And he showed me mercy. And I wasn't punished that day. And because he showed me mercy, you know, that's a moment I've never forgotten and something I think about uh, sometimes still. And, you know, the next time my dad, you know, he said, go take out the trash, go take the trash up to the end of the street. If you've ever seen our driveway, it's like a mountain, basically. Uh, The next time he told me not to do something, I was a lot more eager to listen, and I was a lot more eager to do what he told me to do because he'd show me mercy, because he'd forgiven me, right? And so I wanted to to repay that. I, I wanted to obey my father because he was merciful. And so in the same way, Christ showing us mercy should affect our actions. It should make us more eager to do what he says to do. And Peter is clear that when we truly recognize what Christ has done for us, when we truly understand the mercy that Jesus Christ poured out on us on the cross, then we will turn from our sin and follow him. That is the point that Peter is making. And so again, what does this have to do with our identity? Well, I would argue that to some extent, a person's actions define who they are. If you play football games and you go to practice and you watch the film and all you ever do is football, then you're a football player. You know, I study accounting, and so I study for the tests. I take the tests. I go to class. I read the books. I crunch numbers. I do what accountants do. And that makes me an accountant student, right? And so Christ saved me and motivates me to follow him. And therefore, I'm, I'm no longer defined by my past, but now I'm defined as a follower of Christ because that's what my life is about. That's what I spend my time doing. And even when I say that, and even as I wrote this down in my notes, uh, an objection, a little bell kind of goes off in my head. And some of you may be thinking it too. I am a follower of Christ, but... Still, I sin. Often I sin. Almost every day. Every day, really. So doesn't that mean I'm defined by my sin? Doesn't that make me a sinner? In some sense, yes, but really, no. Because before I knew Christ, my every action was to serve my own selfish desires. I only cared about what I wanted openly. I only cared about what I wanted. And even if I did something for somebody else, it was really only ultimately to serve my purposes, and my selfishness. That was when I was a sinner, when that's all I ever knew. But no, even though I do sin, my main purpose, my goal, and my motivation, now that I understand what Christ has done for me, is to serve Christ. It's no longer to serve myself. So now I'm identified not by my sin, but by Christ. It's like this. Like I said, I'm an accounting student, But when I fail a test, that doesn't mean I cease to be an accounting student. It just means I need to study harder for the next test. You know, if I failed every test, then maybe you could say I'm a failure. In the same way, when I sin, I don't cease to be a Christian if I'm found in Christ. And if Christ is my motivation, it just means that I need to cling even harder to Him. And so tonight, if you aren't motivated to pursue Christ, or if you aren't motivated 
to turn away from your sin, then you may not truly be a follower of Christ. That's what Peter is saying. That you, if you have tasted that the Lord is good, then you'll put away everything your old life was about and you'll long for Christ like a baby longs for milk. So really think about what your actions say about who you are. If I, just, if I didn't know you at all and I just saw your actions, what, what would I think defined you? Who would I think you are? You see, whenever we sin, there is grace. When I sin, there is grace. But if you are only motivated by your own selfish desires and goals, then you don't truly recognize what Christ has done for you. Because if you truly recognize what Christ has done for you, then you would turn from your sin and serve Him. And that's worth thinking about. So examine yourself tonight. See where your priorities really lie. We receive an identity and grace through redemption. My second point is this. We receive an identity and grace through responsibility. We receive an identity and grace through responsibility. So Peter continues, verse 4. He says this, As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. So Peter uses this paradox, living stone, to describe Christ. Stones aren't alive, right? And so it's a paradox, living stone. And so the image of a stone evokes uh, the truth that Jesus is invincibly strong. He will endure forever. He is unchanging in character. Peter is describing who Christ is. And we have to keep in mind who Peter is writing to. He's writing to Christians, Jewish Christians, who would have immediately, bells would have been going off in their head. They would have recognized this language of a stone and connected it to passages in the Old Testament. There's a few that we'll talk about tonight that Peter references a little later on uh, in the text. But Peter is using this paradox in the Old Testament to describe who Christ is because understanding who Christ is, is crucial to understanding who we are. And we'll see why that is in verse 5. So in verse 5, he says this, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood and to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So Peter now uses the same paradox, living stones, to describe us as Christians. He uses that paradox to describe Christ, and now he uses it to describe us. So what does Peter mean by that? Well, Peter is not saying that Christians have the same essence of Christ, or that we are capable of doing anything that Christ accomplished, because Jesus is God, and we are not. So what, what is Peter saying? Well, I think Paul really captures this idea uh, he explains the essence of what Peter is saying in Galatians 2.20. So this is what Paul has to say. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in, in the flesh, I live in faith by the Son of God who gave himself for me. So what Peter is saying is that our identity as Christians is intrinsically linked to who Christ is because we no longer live for ourselves, but for Christ. And Paul even takes it a step further and says, I don't even live anymore. He says, Christ lives in me. And so, the same is true for us if, if we're in Christ. And living for Christ is not done through our own righteousness because we have no righteousness of our own, right? Right? I know I certainly didn't before I knew Christ, and any I have now is His. Rather, it is Christ's righteousness through us that allows us to live for Christ. So that is what Peter is trying to say. And so he continues on. In verse 5, he says, We are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Uh, so, uh, holy priesthood is, is language that Peter will use later in the chapter, and we'll address it then. Um, but he continues this analogy of believers as stones uh, to tell them that they are being built up. 
as a spiritual house, meaning that in addition to the salvation granted to us by Christ, we also have a role to play as Christians in God's greater plan of redemption and restoration in our fallen world. So we as Christians and as the church have a responsibility that God has entrusted us with while we are here on earth. So God in His grace not only saved us, but entrusted us to do things for Him while we are here. And so fulfillment of these responsibilities are these spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God that Peter is talking about. Peter is saying we bring Christ's glory through our actions that serve Him. And so he continues on in verse 6. He says this, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. And so Peter is completing this analogy he's been making in the last couple verses uh, of Christ and believers as stones with these two references that he makes to the Old Testament. Uh, the first of these references is from Isaiah 28:16. It's what we just read, where Jesus is referred to as a cornerstone. Now this analogy is crucial to understanding who Christ is. It's crucial because Peter says that Christ is the cornerstone here. He quotes this passage here in 1 Peter 2. He also quoted it before this in Acts chapter 4. Peter and John are brought in front of the Sanhedrin and are made to give a defense of Christ. And Peter refers to him as the cornerstone in Acts chapter 4 using the same passage. Paul also quotes this passage in Ephesians 2 while explaining that Christ is the centerpiece that the church is built upon. And then later on, in just a few verses, Peter will also reference Psalm 118.22, which also refers to Christ as the cornerstone. So when an idea is repeated in the Bible, it is imperative that we understand it because when it's repeated, it's important. Anything said in the Bible is important, but when it's said over and over and over again, that means it's really something we're supposed to fixate on. And so, simply, what is a cornerstone? Well, a cornerstone is an initial, initial building block that the rest of a building is built off of. So, uh, in ancient times, they would set the cornerstone and then build the rest of the building off of that. It is the foundation. It is crucial to the structure and stability of any building. Without the cornerstone, there is no building. If you built a building and then removed the cornerstone, the building would collapse. And so Christ being the cornerstone means that he's firm, he's secure, and most importantly, it means he's the crucial and central element of our life. It means that for our life to have any purpose, meaning, or structure, it must be built on him, or it will crumble and fade away, ultimately. That is why it is so crucial that our identity is in Christ. That is why it's crucial that we're found in him. Because a life built on anything else literally cannot stand according to this passage. So a life built on money, a life built on success, a life built on popularity, a life built on whatever apart from Christ has no meaning or purpose. But Christ gives us meaning and purpose through his responsibilities that he's given us through his grace. So he continues on, verse 7. He says this, so the honor is for you who believe. So if you're a Christian, you have honor because Christ has given you a new life with a new purpose. As the last verse said, we will not be put to shame because ultimately what we live for and what we do on this earth, if we're living for Christ, has eternal value. And if we give our lives to anything else, those things I mentioned, money, success, uh, friendships, anything apart from Christ, it has no value. And we will be put to shame if our lives are based on those things because ultimately they mean nothing. They're, they're not eternal and they will pass away. In contrast, the kingdom of God will be eternal and will forever have purpose. And that is our purpose in Christ. He continues on, he says, but th for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected 
has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And so Peter is, is using these, these two uh, images of Christ as a stone. He calls him the cornerstone, which you've already talked about, and then a stone of stumbling. So if you put your faith in Christ, if you trust in him, he is the cornerstone. He's what your life is built on. And then on the other hand, if you turn away from Christ, if you put your hope and faith in other things, he is the stumbling block. What Peter is saying is that Jesus is the hinge of eternity, that if you trust in him, you will live forever in God's kingdom with him. And if you don't trust in him, you will live forever separated from God in hell. So either you believe in Christ and make him the cornerstone of your life, you participate with him in his plan of redemption, or you reject Christ and you stumble over him, guaranteeing that your life will be without meaning or purpose. Verse 9, he continues on. This is where, it's all been good, but this is to me where it gets really, really good. This is uh, a lot of the reason why this is one of my favorite or I would call it my favorite passage in Scripture. So verse 9, he says, but. The buts in Scripture are always important. You've probably heard that before. They signify a shift in what is being said, or that the focus of the speaker is about to change. So now that Peter is firmly established that a life with Christ is the only life worth living, and we only live it because Christ lives in us, and that Christ not only saved us, but gave us a part to play in his redemptive plan, Peter is about to list specific occupations or roles that we have uh, in God's kingdom, which have huge implications for how we live our lives. And so he lists them here in verse 9. He says this. He says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Wow. Those words are huge and some of the most poignant in all of the Bible to me. And, and if you don't really understand what Peter is saying, that's okay. We're, we're going to describe each, each of these and what they mean. Um, but really, Peter is saying, you are not a sinner if you're in Christ. You're not a failure if you're in Christ. You're not an addict if you're in Christ. You're not a screw-up if you're in Christ. And you're not a nobody if you're in Christ. If you are found in Christ... You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for his own possession. That should get us excited tonight. This is how God views us when we are his. He doesn't view us as failures and sinners. He views us as his. But like I said, these roles have implications. They have responsibilities. There's an expectation to carry out the things that these roles imply. And so have you ever wondered why God even uses us to share the gospel or to bring him glory? Because, you know, God doesn't need us to do those things, right? He could save people and he could bring himself glory without ever using any one of us. But it's clear that he does use us, so why does he use us? The simple answer is because he loves us. God was so filled with grace that he not only saved us, but he chose to use us as vessels to bring the gospel to others. This is a great gift. We get to be a part of his redemptive work. And you could preach a singular sermon on each of these, these descriptions that Peter uses, and, and you could talk for hours and hours on what each of these mean and, and just how significant it is. Um, but we're just going to briefly look at each of these uh, responsibilities and roles and just break them down and try and simplify them a little bit so we can walk away with something tonight. Um, but we will look briefly at each of these, these roles that God has graciously gifted us if we're in Him. And so first, Peter says, we are a chosen race. So each of these roles that Peter lists are really steeped in Old Testament meaning. And uh, chosen race is a clear reference to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. The nation of Israel, the Jewish people, were God's chosen people in the Old Testament. Uh, and now through Christ, the chosen race is not just Israel. It includes people of all races, nations, and creeds whom God saves. That's who the chosen race is. So if you're in Christ, you are part of the chosen race. 
Listen to God's description of his chosen race of Israel in Deuteronomy 7, 6, and 8. He says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Catch this right here. It was not because you were more the number than any people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And so while it's true that in that passage in Deuteronomy, God is speaking specifically to the nation of Israel, and we have to be careful not to apply what God says to Israel to us necessarily, uh, but Peter uses much of the same language that God uses to describe Israel in this passage to describe the Christian. Almost the exact same language. And so because of that, we can assume that what God says of Israel in this passage is true of the Christian. We are chosen by God, not because of some inherent value we have. It's not because uh, we're such good people or um, we're so great or because God sees that in the future we're going to do some kind of good. It has nothing to do with us. We have no merit, no power, nothing. So we are chosen by God, not because of any of that, but because of the love that God has for us. So since God's grace in redeeming us motivates us to live for Him, how much more should the fact that He has chosen us specifically out of love motivate us to live for Him? So God's mercy motivates us to live for Him, but the fact that God has given us responsibility on top of that should motivate us even more to serve Him because God doesn't need us at all. God doesn't need to use us, but He chooses to. And so we should long to be choosed to be used by God. The second description that that Peter uses, the second role he lays out is this. He says, we are a royal priesthood. Again, this is another Old Testament concept. It's laid out in the book of Exodus. So the priests had a major role in, in the society of Israel in the Old Testament. They were responsible for, for making sacrifices. They interceded on behalf of the common people. They were responsible for reading and teaching Scripture. They read and taught Scripture. And once a year, one priest was chosen, and he would enter into the Holy of Holies, which is where God's presence was held in the temple in Jerusalem. Once a year. And so, Peter calling us priests in the New Testament context suggests that we are to, to offer sacrifices to God, just not the same sacrifices. Our sacrifices are to be praise, worship, and sharing the gospel. We are to ascribe glory to Him. That is what Peter says in in verse 5, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What he's referring to there is ascribing glory to God. Anything we do that brings glory to God is our sacrifice to Him. Because we're sacrificing time, we're sacrificing um, all things temporal. And we're living for Him. Just like the priests of the Old Testament, we are to read God's Word. We are to memorize it. We are to understand it. We are to seek out its meaning. And we are to share it and teach it to others. And now through Christ, we are able to enter into the presence of God, not just once a year in the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, but anywhere at any time if you are found in Christ because Because of Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells within us. This is a gift we neglect far too often. That I neglect far too often. We are to pray ceaselessly. We are to cast all our cares on God because He cares for us. At any moment, we can enter into the presence of God. And we should often and without ceasing. The other part of this title that that Peter gives. He says we're a royal priesthood. So we described what priest means. The other part is royal. Well, that means we're royalty. Christ gives us power to rule over our sinful flesh. Again, not through anything that's found in us, but through Him. And one day we shall live with God in His kingdom that He rules over as sons and daughters of the King. 
we will be part of the royal family. And that is grace. So the third role that Peter gives to the Christians, uh, that is to give them identity, is holy nation. Holy means to be set apart. You know, in the, in the Old Testament, when we see uh, visions of the throne of God, the angels are flying around His throne, and, and what do they sing? They sing, holy, holy, holy. Which is to say that God isn't just holy, but He's holy, holy, holy. He's the most holy. He's the holiest. And holy means to be set apart. And so Israel was to be a representation in the Old Testament uh, of God to the world around them. They were to display the attributes of God to other peoples and other nations. They were to look different from the world around them as God's chosen people. If they blended in, if they looked like every other nation, how were people to know that they had God's favor? How, do people, how were people to know that they were God's alone? We must do the same. We must look and must talk and must act differently than the world around us because we are ambassadors for Christ. And so if you don't look different than the people around you, if you live as the world lives, that is not what you're called to if you're a follower of Christ. And so if you're living that way, you may need to check yourself. And then as a nation, he calls them a holy nation. He calls us a holy nation. As one nation, we are under one righteous king, that is King Jesus, and under the same laws and customs, that is the scripture. And we are to be unified in truth. We're not to quarrel with one another. And then lastly, Peter gives this description, this role. He says that we are a people for his own possession. Meaning that we who belong to Christ belong to God. We are his. Take comfort in that. Know that if you are, if you are in Christ, you are no longer bound by your sin, but you are free to live for him. You are no longer defined by what you've done in the past. You are defined by Christ alone. That is how God views you. Listen to the Lord's words in Malachi 3, 17 and 18. He says this, They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man who spares his own son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. So we are a people for his own possession. If you are in him, he cannot lose you because he's God. And so, Matthew Henry, a biblical scholar, he, he beautifully sums up these roles and how they should affect our lives as Christians. This is his quote. He says this, It is the honor of the servants of Christ that they are God's peculiar people. They are the people of his acquisition, choice, care, and delight. These four dignities of all genuine Christians are not natural to them, so, so we don't inherently have them. He says, For their first state is a state of horrid darkness, but they are effectually called out of darkness into a state of marvelous light, joy, pleasure, and prosperity. Why? Catch this. He says, With this intent in view, that they should show forth by words and actions the virtues and praises of him who hath called them. So, it is our honor that, that we have these four qualities that, that God has given us, these four dignities, Matthew Henry calls them. And we understand that these things aren't of our own flesh or of our own doing. They're a gift from God. And God has called us out of darkness into light. And because of all that, we are to show forth by words and actions the virtues and praises of him who hath called them. So if you're not showing forth by words and actions the virtues and praises of God, then, then you don't have these four qualities and you don't know God at all. This is the idea that, that Peter finishes with in verse 9. He says, he says, We have all these titles that we may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. 
So in this final portion of verse 9, Peter tells us why God involves us in his redemptive work. He tells us the why behind it all. And the reason we serve God, the reason why God chooses us to serve him, is that we may bring glory to him. We serve God so we can tell others about him and make his name known. So again, if you're not doing that, then you may not be in him. The word proclaim in this passage is used nowhere else in the New Testament. It's a very peculiar word and one we could probably talk a lot about. Um, But what it means is it means to tell something not otherwise known. And I think we would agree that a lot of people in Ruston, a lot of people in the South, they know the gospel. They know uh, the Bible. So what are we telling them that's not otherwise known? Well, it's that verse 3 idea, right? Tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. They have to truly understand what Christ has done for them because if they truly understand what Christ has done for them, then they, can't, they won't be able to help but live for Him. And when we understand what Christ has done for us, we can't help but live for Him. And so we receive an identity and grace through responsibility. And my last point here, we receive an identity and grace through response. We receive an identity and grace through response. So Peter finishes here in verse 10. He says, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so Peter is using this language. It's from the book of Hosea. He uses this language to illustrate again to the Christians he's writing to that their lives before and after Christ are to be distinct. They're not supposed to look the same. Those who do not know Christ are not God's people and did not receive mercy. But those who do know Christ are God's people and receive mercy. And so I want to address these two groups, those who do know God and those who do not. And I want to address how they can respond tonight in light of what Peter is saying to us. And so if, if Rupert and the band wants to come up, uh, I'm, I'll be finishing up here. Uh, but first, to those who know God. Uh, I would say this, or at least to those who at the very least, even if you think you know God, I'm talking to you. Examine yourself. Do you truly know God and understand what He's done for you? If you're living for yourself, if your life is not characterized by living for God, by being a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for His own possession, a holy nation, then you may not truly know Christ. And I assure you that you want to be sure if you know Christ or not. And so if you search your heart and you find that you don't really understand who Christ is or what He has done for you, please, please come talk to me. Uh, I'll I'll be down front during these last few songs. I'll be around after the service. Talk to Justin. Talk to someone you know on leadership. But do not keep going through the motions. Do not keep living life, fooling yourself that you know Christ when really your actions uh, show that you don't at all. And then, if you are secure in Christ, if, if you would claim that you do know God and you're sure of that fact, then this I have to say to you. Be encouraged by, by what Peter says. Peter, uh, Peter is clear that an understanding of God's grace causes the Christian to serve God. And so since Christ has chosen you to be His, you are to push on in giving your all for Him. Be encouraged tonight. See the roles that your Father has given to you. See how He views you. And live in light of that fact. Don't be held anymore by the sin that so easily entangles because, again, that's not how God views you. He views, views you as His. And so dive deeper into His Word and into prayer and into fasting and into all the other things that it means to serve God. And don't be held back by your guilt and shame because your sins are forgiven. It's done. It's finished. And to those who don't know God, I would say this. If you feel your life is devoid of meaning and purpose, if you feel like you have a void in your heart that you keep trying to fill and you find that money doesn't work and you find that uh, success doesn't work and you find that all the things that the world has to offer doesn't work, 
then know this. Christ is the only answer. It's the only thing that will fulfill you. Christ wants to use you and He wants to give you that purpose, but you have to understand what Christ has done for you. You've sinned against God and you have committed evil. I've sinned against God. I've committed evil. And God is perfectly just to condemn you and He's perfectly just to condemn me. However, God, in His infinite love and mercy, sent His Son, Jesus, to die for us. And that is the good news. That is the gospel. And He died for you that you might live for Him. But know this. Living for Him means that you no longer live for yourself. Your desires, what you want, what what you aim to be in life, no longer matters. It's no longer your priority. You will be living for the One who made you. And you will be living for Him alone. So if tonight you're realizing that you're fed up with living for yourself, you're done trying to fill that void with things that won't satisfy, then know that Christ will again. And again I say, I'll be down front. Please come talk to me. Please find me after the service. Do whatever you have to do uh, to, to learn what it means to understand who Christ is so that you can follow Him. I would love to show you what it means to live for Christ. Uh, I'm not perfect, but uh, through Christ, I live for Him. And I, I, again, I would love to show you what that looks like. Let's pray. Dear Lord, again, I just thank you so much for this opportunity you've given us. Uh, I thank you so much for this passage where uh, you make it so clear that if we truly understand who you are, that we will live for you, God. So I thank you for that responsibility. I thank you for that grace that you have lavished upon us that we might serve you even though we don't deserve it. And so God, if there's anyone here tonight who doesn't know you who, or who thought they knew you but they examined themselves and found their life didn't reflect a life for you, God, I pray that they would understand that they need you and you alone. And I pray that they would take care of business tonight, that they would, that they would come to know you tonight, God. Uh, I pray that they would talk to any of the people we have down front. I pray that they would talk to me, God. If they're feeling this way, God, do work tonight, God. I pray that tonight we may count another among the ranks of a, of a holy nation, a, a royal priesthood, God. It's in your name I pray. Amen.